And now, deep thoughts. You are listening to Deep Thoughts, where every episode explores one aspect of the Christian faith a little more deeply. I'm your host, Matt Schantz. Is there a way to walk faithfully through doubt and come out the other side with a deeper love for Jesus, the church, and its tradition? Can we question our faith without losing it? My guest is AJ Swoboda, and that's what he explores in his new book, After Doubt, How to Question Your Faith Without Losing It, and is the subject of our conversation. As a college pastor, church planter in Portland, and now as a professor, he's had over 20 years experience having this front row seat at doubt and deconstruction. And what he's put down in his book and throws down in this episode is nothing short of fantastic. AJ's goal is unmistakably Jesus, as you'll hear. That's what permeates from him. This conversation literally lifted my spirits and filled me with fresh hope in our moment. I know you'll love it. And so now, here's my deep conversation with AJ Swoboda. Well, hey, AJ, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Matt, it's a joy to be with you. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about this book that I'm holding in my hands called After Doubt, How to Question Your Faith Without Losing It. Uh, but before we, we dive into that, I'd love to just back things up a little bit and, and hear about you, uh, AJ, and uh, a bit about yourself. And then weave into that, if you could, just some of the experiences that led to you writing this book. Absolutely. Yes. So I uh, live here in Eugene, Oregon, uh, the home of the Oregon Ducks. Um, my wife and I, my wife and I, uh, have been married for uh, 18 years. This summer, we have a an incredible uh, son, nine year old son. We have uh, 12 chickens and this really cool kind of uh, urban farm uh, in the heart of the city. Uh, but my um, kind of th- that's my my heart heartbeat. My my vocation and and sort of work is. I'm a professor. I teach Bible and theology at Bushnell University, so I'm the assistant professor here, um, and teach theology, pastoral work, Bible, that that the like. And actually, you know, if, if you read this book after doubt, um, you'll notice it's dedicated to my students. And I, I think a, pr- a primary reason I wrote this book is uh, for the better part of 22 years, my life's efforts have been serving the spiritual journeys of essentially college students. Uh, for 10 years, I was a college pastor. For 10 years, I was a church planter in Portland and a pastor. And for the last few years, I've been a full-time academic. And as a result, um, I've had the chance to sit in the front row, you know, for 22 years and watch um, this whole doubt and deconstruction thing play itself out over and over and over again. And along the way, I've just had the chance to learn a lot about that process. And I felt like, in a lot of ways, this book is a manifesto of 22 years of my life. Hmm. Um, and, and the hope is, that I'm able to give some language that is helpful for those who are walking through those experiences. Hmm. Well, that's great. Um, I think it might be helpful as we dive into the conversation. If you, if you wouldn't mind, could you tell us about Phil, uh, who you write about Mm -hmm. in the book? Because I think, I think it's such a helpful example of, of, uh, of what this book's all about and uh, very relatable to many. 
Yeah, I opened the book um, with a very vulnerable story about a young man I, I call Phil. That's not actually his name. Um, you know, for, for a book's sake, you got to be cautious to, you know, anonymatize stuff. But anon- is that the right word? Anonymatize. I just, I just, I think that, that's the first I, time I've used that word. I don't know, but it I, feels I, right. I get it and I like it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So tell the story about a young man uh, who is kind of a, you know, it's a person we all know. Uh, they were raised, a young person raised in the church, loved Jesus, loved, um, loves, loves, loves God, part of the church, uh, middle America, kind of conservative Christian home moves to Portland, uh, kind of secular progressive Portland. And, uh, really over the course of a year, um, I watched this young man go from having a passionate love for Jesus to deconstructing his entire faith. Um, and, you know, the second time I sat with this young man in my office, he's, he's talking to me about the evolution of his faith over the course of her. And as he's sitting in my office crying and, and he says to me, he goes, you know, he, he goes, I have a lot of doubts and a lot of struggles with my faith. And he says, am I still allowed to be a Christian? Hmm. You know, tears cascading down his face. I knew at that moment I was not talking to a person. I was talking to a generation, uh, a generation of people who, have legitimate doubts um, and and struggles with their faith and have no idea what to do with it. So, you know, the story of Phil um, is that I I walked with Phil for the next number of years and and Phil is still a very good friend of mine and he is following Jesus today and has a deep love for God, a deeper love than he ever had before. Hmm. But it it was quite the journey of going through the the valley of of death. (laughs) You know, it's it's a dark dark experience. But really what this book is about is it's a book of hope. There is a way to walk through doubt and deconstruction faithfully to God. Yeah. And that's what I, I think why it's so timely. You mentioned something in the book that, that I resonate with, I think is absolutely right. There are a lot of books out there written to the skeptic of the Christian faith. The, the, right, the, the mere Christianities yeah. of the world, or a lot of the apologetics books, stuff like that. Yeah. Not a lot of books necessarily, like this one, which is I grew up in the church, but now I'm starting to doubt a lot of stuff, and it's yeah. that's a different book, right? And yeah, yeah. Actually, the book is titled "After Doubt," uh, sort of as a play on N.T. Wright's book "After You Believe." Tom, Tom Wright wrote mm-hmm. a book um, that is essentially the opposite of my book, which is not in message, but there are a lot of books that seek to help doubters move to faith. But there are not a lot of books about what happens when the faithful start moving towards doubt. Right. And this, this is, this is that, this is that journey. Cause there's, I just read everything by Tom Wright, uh, CS Lewis and Tim Keller. If you, if you want to go from, from doubt to faith. Um, but this is really an attempt to speak to that group that's moving from faith to doubt. And they're, mm-hmm. they're struggling to, you hit the nail on the head. You know, the person who was raised in the church who goes to college and never had to come face to face with a world of diversity and real questions. Um, how do you, how do you handle that? What do you, what do you do with that? So deconstruction is such a buzzword right now, right? It's, it's yeah. like, it, it's yeah. like, it's, it's like it came out of nowhere in the last couple of years and, and, yes. and now everybody is deconstructing. Um, that's, that's just, I think that's just new language, but like people have always doubted, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. So I do think it's important. It's funny, any, any writer, uh, whoever writes about five hot seconds after you've hit send of the manuscript to the manuscript to the publisher, you, you have all these things like you wish you would have done with the book. <laughs> um, and one thing I wish I would have done more clearly in the book was actually define the terms doubt and deconstruction. I think doubt, you know, in the, in the, in the Oxford dictionary, uh, the doubt is an affection of, um, it, it's an affection of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an experience of not knowing what you think about something, you know, and doubt, you know, in, in the, in the Bible, doubt is, um, an experience, almost all the faithful walk through at some point, you know, you, you look at the psalmist, the Psalter is full of this experience of uncertainty, the doubting Thomas experience. You have so many experiences of, of doubt. And I think doubt is something that often happens to us. Mm-hmm. It's not something we choose or want. It happens to us. Mm-hmm. And usually it's through an experience or something that has happened that causes us to question something we already think. Deconstruction is a little different. Doubt is more, it happens to us. Deconstruction is a bit more active. It's something we do. And deconstruction, I would define it as the dismantling of uh, a certain belief system or belief structure. And I need to be very clear because you hit the nail on the head. It's become a very sexy conversation, that deconstruction topic. But, you know, some deconstruction is is not good. And some deconstruction is actually very, very good. Um, and we've got to be very careful to not lump it all together. Yeah. Jesus deconstructed. I mean, when you look at Matthew five through seven, Jesus is, he is inherently undoing, um, calcified interpretations of the Bible. You know, when he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, I mean, that's an act of deconstruction. He is deconstructing the way people think about the Bible. So not all deconstruction is bad. Yep. That's super helpful. I was going to ask you if deconstruction is, morally ambiguous in the sense that deconstruction is not inherently bad. Um, there's it's, it's what are you deconstructing in the Christian yes. faith, Christian movement, um, yes. Christian subculture, <laughs> right? Yes. So could you, could you talk only- about good and bad? Like, like what is good deconstruction as you say, and as Jesus did, um, where is it maybe bad deconstruction? Yeah. And I, I actually, I'm, I'm catching myself now. I'm thinking on the spot here, but I'm catching myself. I actually don't know if, and I used it. So it's my fault. I'm not thinking you, I don't know if I like the language of good and bad deconstruction. That's a bit too hard and fast for my taste. Yep. But I, I do think it all depends on our goal. So as a Christian, as a follower of the way of Jesus, as somebody who is called to, to be crucified with Christ, to follow Jesus, my goal is Jesus and nothing else. I mean, that, that has to be the, the goal. That, that, that is the end. Like the, there, There's nothing outside of that. that. It is the pursuit of the way of Jesus. Mm-hmm. If that is the goal, and Paul would say in all of his letters, he would say that's the crux. That's the whole story. The whole story is Christ and nothing else. If I preach anything other than Christ, <laughs> I should go to hell. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. so Christ determining what the goal is helps us with a rubric of what is healthy and not healthy. Yeah. So when I, when I'm sitting, I'm sitting in my office right now, when I have a student, I have had hundreds of students come into my office with the same conversation. I am really questioning the beliefs that I was handed as a child. This is the university experience, by the way, it's not because they're in my <laughs> class, like normal, 
So when I'm sitting with a student and they say, is it okay to doubt or deconstruct my beliefs? And my answer is never an answer. It's always a question. And my question is, is why, why are you doing it? And the way their heart in that response is really important because if on one hand they say, I am deconstructing certain things I was handed as a kid because I love God with all my heart. And I was handed some junk that is not about Jesus. That is not good. Mm -hmm. If somebody says I'm doing that because I'm trying to follow Jesus, that to me is like, praise God. Yeah. If, if you are questioning your beliefs because your goal is the all out 100% pursuit of the way of Jesus, that's called repentance. Amen. Hmm. But you and I both know, Matt, <laughs> that often when I ask, why are you deconstructing or doubting? Very often what's really going on is not that somebody wants to follow Jesus, but really what we're talking about is they really just want to be able to sleep with who they want to sleep with. Hmm. And really they just want to be able to do their own thing. And frankly, they're tired of having somebody tell them how to live their life. Right. That is a, that is a dangerous path. Yeah. <laughs> does, does it really, does it really say that? Because I don't want it to, you know, <laughs> you know, th there's, there's That's so exactly much driving right. the motivation to elsewhere. The motivation, the why, that's huge. Are we deconstructing because we are trying to follow Jesus with all of our heart hmm. or we just want our life back to do what we want to do? Yeah. And I think the distinct that to distinguish those two things, the heart Martin Luther deconstructed almost entirely the tradition he was handed for the sake of returning the gospel to the church in his perspective. At the time, he was looked at as a heretic. Now, we, we always love the prophets when they're dead. Uh, we never love them in their life. Yes. Martin Luther was not loved during his life. It was afterwards that it became clear, like, oh my goodness, he really sought to bring the gospel back to the for forefront. But he spent his life deconstructing something in order to bring the gospel back. Hmm. And I think, if you were to put me in a corner, Matt, I actually think a lot of the people that we are seeing deconstruct their faith really are actually just in love with Jesus and have been handed a, lot, a bunch of baloney yeah. that gets in the way of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. Um, you know, there's... It's a good thing for a young person who's, who's grown up in a particular church. I'll just throw out just a random example. And they look around and they go, you know what, my church... That my church, the people who make up my church, they, they, they don't really seem to have any regard for the poor. And yet they make such a big deal about not drinking a drop of alcohol or something, you know, some, some random thing, but that, that's a young person's perspective. Sometimes it's like, I, there's so many calls for us to uh, care for the foreigner, the widow, the orphan, um, the poor among us. And I don't see my church doing that. Meanwhile, I see people planting vineyards in the Bible and yet we're not supposed to do And they're like, I don't know what to do with that. And like there is a good deconstruction that can come with wrestling through. I want to, I want to follow Jesus. Some of this stuff se doesn't seem to add up in what I'm seeing and, and trying to form a, a deeper path um, in their walk with Jesus. Like you're saying that is good deconstruction. That's a great thing. The goal is Jesus and faithfulness. I almost never, um, 
I almost never, not, not never, but almost never. So this is, I'm going to say in the 95 percentile range, almost never see young people deconstruct their faith because they took some professor class at the university by some liberal secular professor that's trying to undo the Bible. Um, 95% of the time I see young people deconstructing their faith because they see how Christians live Hmm. and, and what it, what that experience of watching Christians hold forth orthodoxy without living it has a very discombobulating experience. By the way, um, the church is a broken woman. It's a, it's a broken entity and it will never not be broken. Um, but that experience You hit the nail on the head. It really is challenging for young people because, I mean, in America, for example, you know, if you're in a community that holds, reads the Nicene Creed every week and you say the Lord's Prayer, but you're not, but you never as a community talk about things like justice or race or difficult conversations and you see your friends protesting in the street, it creates this experience. Like, why does my church not care about things that Jesus cares about? Hmm. In the parable of the prodigal son, there's this, I don't know, you know, why this never dawned my imagination before writing this book. But when you read the parable of the prodigal son, you have this story of a younger son who runs away from the home. There's the older son who is cast as the sort of rigid religious person and the father. And it's not the parable of the prodigal son. It's the parable of the prodigal sons that the irony of the story is you can never leave home and still be lost. Um, <laughs> but it, this never dawned on them until writing this book. Why did the younger son run away? Like what, there's nothing in the story that speaks to what it was. And I think the only thing that explains it is I think the younger son ran away from the father because he was sick and tired of living with the older sibling. <laughs> and that, what is happening today is a lot of young people are running away from God because they're tired of the older brother. Right. The legalist. But I want to say Jesus is too good to run away because you know a Christian or two that are not good people. Hmm. Jesus is just too good. Come back home because the older brother shouldn't get the entire house to himself. In fact, it's better that he not, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, goal, the goal is actually that he, he's the one who has to confront his own heart. Um, Jesus is about seeking and saving the lost. That's good. Um, and to, to add nothing to the fact that I'm a theologian, but it was the theologians who got Jesus crucified. Um, the, the older brothers do a really good job of causing a lot of people to run away from the father's house. Mm-hmm. And let's come home yeah let's speak (laughs) let's speak to that you know like jude 23 says have mercy on those who doubt but but some of what you're saying the older brother uh the theologians that had jesus killed right the religious leadership of the day um in in your assessment you've talked to like you said hundreds of students and you were a pastor and yet people coming in to your office and uh having these conversations over and over and over again um what's your assessment of of the church's is the church following that command? Have mercy on those who doubt. And 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 if not, like what what could that look like? How do you get to a place? Because you, you, 
you can, it's one of those complicated commands, like have mercy on those who doubt. It's like, okay, I, I want to like, do not commit adultery. It's kind of a, okay, that's the thing. Have mercy mm. on those who doubt. Like it can still lead people to be like, yeah, but how, like, what does that look like? Yes. And, and yes. I don't know. What's your yes. assessment? Well, yeah, that, you know, um, <laughs> Jesus says, you know, if, if that we should treat him, the immoral brother as a tax collector. And we, we hear that we go, okay, I guess that means we just kick him out. When in reality, how did Jesus treat tax collectors? <laughs> he <was laughs> loved them. Really nice to him yeah. and actually called him to follow him. So, um, you know, what does that mean? Is the church doing that? Um, uh, I, having served as a pastor, I'm not going to be very quick to judge the church because pastoring is really hard work right now. And I will say that, um, people in the church that I pastored who were going through the deconstruction experience were very difficult to pastor. Um, and they took too much time. They wanted too many coffee appointments and I didn't have enough time for all of them all the time. They're very difficult and making space for doubters in the community is challenging. Mm-hmm. But the implication or the assumption, the implied, com- the, the implication of the, com- the assumption of the command make be merciful to those in doubt implies they're in your midst. Like you can't be merciful to someone that's not there. Yep. So that Jude writes that implies that they're in the room. Now <clears throat> the Thomas story in John 20, I think speaks to this because <clears throat> you have 10 disciples who have seen the resurrected Jesus who has resurrected, walked around for a few days, showed his disciples, but there was a disciple who wasn't there. Thomas, and Thomas finds out that the disciples have seen Jesus. He hasn't. And it's so, I mean, it's glaring in the text. Jesus doesn't show up for a whole week to show Thomas his body for a week. And I love that because Jesus doesn't drop what he's doing and rush off to try to fix this doubt problem that's in the midst. You know, hmm. it seems completely okay. Dallas Willard says that from time to time, God allows us to stew in our doubts and our question because it actually makes us deeper people. Wow. I like that word stew. I, I like he, he let Jesus lets Thomas stew for a week, but then he shows up. What's beautiful to me is a, you have a group of faithful disciples who make room for one week for Thomas to be in their midst. And they create space for the guy who's struggling to believe. Hmm. And I love secondarily that Thomas was willing to remain among the faithful in his struggle with doubt. He stayed. Yeah. He stayed. In contrast, by the way, to Judas, who after denying Jesus just runs away and quits. Yeah. Um, Thomas, I think, had his resurrection of faith story largely because he was willing to stick around for a week. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. I love that. Um can I throw a couple live issues at you? Get your take? Please, yes. I think they've led some to deconstruction. One is yeah. sort of the aftermath of... Um, yeah. And by the way, just to follow up on that church piece, I think that there can be a, a challenge. There can be different ends of the pendulum that I don't think land where you're calling us to land, which is Jesus as the treasure. <laughs> What's the motivation? Mm-hmm. So... Sometimes in conservative circles, uh, there can be this idea that, hey, look, um, do not question. 
Like do not, there's no space for your questions. That means you don't have enough faith, right? And then on the other end, kind of maybe a more liberal kind of environment might say, question everything. Everything. It's all up for grabs. And I think what you're saying, I mean, part of how I see have mercy on those who doubt is um, it's a Jesus community of people whose eyes are on Jesus, recognizing people are in different places in their journey and just lovingly like i love that waiting a week thing like giving it some space letting it breathe right and uh so not rushing to try and quickly i think that can be kind of on the uh extreme side where it's like oh there's a question i need to just pound them with information and hopefully that doubt goes away but a, a comfort to to walk with jesus love the the folks well that that are wrestling but it also shows your trust in Jesus when you can patiently, like Jesus did in that week, patiently kind of just trust that Jesus is going to do his work as we just yeah. continue to love and be there um, and have heart-to-heart conversations as they come. That's great. Um, a couple live conversations here. Um, one is about purity culture. So it, it's mm-hmm. kind of uh, the, the big kind of groundswell pushback of this 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 courtship idea. There were some books written about it. I Kiss Dating Goodbye probably you know being the most famous of them. And now there seems to be wrapped up in deconstruction for a lot of people, this idea that, man, that whole purity culture really messed me up. Where, where does that, how have you interacted with that? And, and, and how would you respond to that as a live issue of deconstruction? Yeah. Um, you know, to, to his credit, Joshua Harris, who wrote, um, a book called I Kissed Dating by in the 1990s, which actually was the first book that I read as a brand new Christian at 16 years old. Um, has recanted everything he he said in that book. Yeah. But has also recanted his faith. Yeah. Um, but to his credit, you know, he recognized that the message of that book was unhelpful. And I actually, in in my book, um, don't believe that Joshua Harris should be at fault for that. I think who should be at fault is a cult, an evangelical culture that clamors over hot young voices and clamors over. Um, books that sell too much more than it clamors over orthodoxy. Mm. Um, and I'm, I'm an evangelical, so I'm, I'm speaking to my own tribe and not pointing the fingers, but we, we should never have put that much power in the hands of a 16 year old to shape our theology. And ultimately what it did uh, is it created a whole generation of people that thought that as long as we don't have sex before we're married, um, we were taught that if, if we save ourselves for marriage, We'll get married and have an incredible husband, wife, children, and family. Um, which at the end of the day, that's just an evangelical form of the prosperity gospel hmm. uh, that says that if, you, if you're faithful to God, then this will happen. Right. And, and ultimately, we, what, what happened was we were sold a formula uh, rather than the gospel. We were sold a formula that if you do this, then this will happen. Well, that's not how it works. Some of us, some of us have, were faithful to God and didn't have sex before marriage and have really hard marriages and can't have kids and got cancer at 25. And some of us, it didn't work out very well, but, but the gospel is we don't, we don't, we don't act faithfully to God because it's going to get us everything we want on this earth. Mm. We act faithfully to God because God is worth following. And the, the reward for obedience is obedience for obedience sake, because God is worthy of being followed. We don't do it to get something. That's the prosperity gospel. And I think my generation was sold a formula. 
Wow. If you do this, then this happens. And we all grew up and found out the formula is broken. Yeah. And the, the generation, honestly, that is undoing that formula, praise God they're undoing it. Praise God, because it, it is it is wrong, it's not gospel, and it should be undone. That's great. That's right. Really helpful. We 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 have to be we, we have to understand that whenever we sell a theology and a formula that does not actually point us to Jesus, we are creating the need for people to deconstruct in their twenties and thirties. If, if we actually want people to be lifelong followers of Jesus, mm-hmm. then we need to stop making promises for God that aren't true. And the Bible, by the way, has a word for that, um, making false promises for God. Uh, it's called taking God's name in vain. Right. It's putting God's name as a banner over our lives. And um, we should be telling young people, follow Jesus. It's going to destroy your life. It's not going to lead to happiness. It's going to lead to Jesus. And that, at the end of the day, is worth spending your life dying to follow. Yes. What about when famous uh, Christian leaders fall, especially those that may have led you to faith or really helped your faith grow? Obviously, most notably, uh, Ravi Zacharias um, has been all over the place just in terms of... I've just seen so many people say, he was so formative for me, and now I don't know what to do with all of this. It becomes a part of the deconstruction story because that person that played a role has now failed me. Yes. Um. I, I guess I want to respond gingerly, but, but at the same time, prophetically, <laughs> um, I think that right now the church is at a crossroads and we are, we are, we are going to need to ask some really big questions around our celebrities because we, we have become a celebrity culture. We have become a celebrity and I, and I don't think COVID has helped at all. No. Uh, the online environment has created more of an environment for us to build brands and celebrities rather than advance the gospel. Um, and to the degree that we are a celebrity based culture, uh, we are going to have this happen until Jesus comes back. It's not going to end anytime soon. And to be honest with you, I'm not a, I'm not a Roman Catholic and I have reasons why I'm not a Roman Catholic, but I have, if I'm candid, I'm really drawn to the way Roman Catholics look at sainthood <laughs> because in order to be a saint, you have to, you have to have loved the church. You have to have been Orthodox in your theology and you have to be dead. That's right. <laughs> it's helpful. And why I love the dead part is because I don't think the living can handle the kind of fame that we're giving them right now. Hmm. I think the living, um, it is, it is absolutely detrimental to the human soul that we put as much stock in Ravi Zacharias as we did his ideas transformed me. I mean, I, I have had to, I have literally had to change my lectures because of what happened because to stand up and quote Ravi Zacharias for young people in my classes who have been sexually assaulted would be a slap in their face. And it's, it's very important that I do that. But I am increasingly being drawn to dead Christians (laughs) (laughs) because the living just can't handle Mm. You know, the, the book of Acts, by the way, how many times does Paul go into a city and people try to worship him? Yeah. And he has to say, like, 
you guys don't get it. I'm not the one. Celebrity worship has been a part of the church from day one. Mm. And evangelicals have just made it a bigger deal than ever because it's everything about personality. And I, I actually think, Matt, this is why so many young people are gravitating towards Anglicanism, yep. Roman Catholicism, and like, because the center is not a personality, it's the Eucharist. That's right. You uh, responded to that question gingerly and prophetically. Thank you, AJ. <laughs> Just as you had hoped. Okay, we're running out of time here, but um, you say early on in the book that we all must cross the desert of skeptical criticism and share that nearly 60% of people raised in Christian churches deconstruct their faith following high school. Um, so, how do we navigate skeptical criticism faithfully as Christians? That's another way. Um, opposed and engaged throughout the book is, is it possible to question one's faith without losing it? If so, how? I think um, I have learned the most about this from Amish Christians. So in Amish communities, uh, there's a a brilliant documentary about this called The, the Devil's Playground, which is about how the Amish practice deconstruction and what they do is for the Amish, when you turn 18 years old, you are sent into the world, essentially, to go and experience the world. You know, you are sent into the world to, they, they have a word for it, it's called rumspringa. Rumspringa literally means, in German, it means to run around. And you are sent into the world to explore what the world is like. Party, do all the stuff you need to do, get it out of your system. And then after the year, they are given an opportunity to come back and be baptized, or they stay in the world. And what the astoundingly 99% of Amish kids come back to the church. And what they, the reason is the reason they come back is they taste the world and the world cannot compare to the community of God's people. It just can't compare. Hmm. Here's, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to tell my son, go out to college and party and do all this stuff. I'm not going to do that. But here's what I love about the Amish. They are intentional about deconstruction they don't just, they, they, they actually give attention to it. Evangelicals and those in our tribes don't usually intentionally give thought to it, but we still do rumspringer. We just call it college. Um, they go off and deconstruct their faith and party and there's no intentionality behind it. And I, I, I suspect that we need to start introducing young people to the difficulties of Christian faith earlier on and more intentionally from the front. And what that means is in our youth groups, we need to not treat youth group as a place to come get all the answers. It actually needs to be a place where we get the really good questions because here's what, what happens when young people are not given the the deep questions, they go off to college and they have some philosophy professor who does not care about Jesus, who is going to give them the right questions. And when you're handed the questions by somebody who doesn't love Jesus, you all of a sudden start resenting the people that do love Jesus because they never gave you the questions. I think that we should get the questions from the church and we should be wrestling. Listen, I am as conservative on sexuality as you can be. We need to start talking to our kids, our high school kids about the, the, the nuances of the sexual conversations happening in our and not wait till they go to college because if they wait till they go to college, they're going to have no tools, no tools. Yeah. Yeah. No tools whatsoever. Yeah. So yeah. here's what I'm saying. 
we need to bring up the difficulties of faith earlier on and do so from the front as leaders. I have found this, I'll, I'll close with this. I love Jesus with all my heart, okay? I hope that comes across in everything I'm saying. When I am in a room with college students and I vulnerably tell my students about things in the Bible that keep me up at night, when I vulnerably tell my students things that I don't have ironed out in my faith, it gives me all the trust in the world because they have a leader who loves Jesus with some struggles. Hmm. And, and when I do that for them, I am giving them a pathway forward. That's great. People have to take their questions somewhere. And if they don't take it to the church, they will take it to the internet. And I will tell you, that's the last place we want people taking their questions. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Well, I've really appreciated this conversation. You, you close with a postscript in your book um, called Hope for Reconstruction. And you talk about Isaiah, where he talks about rebuilding the ancient ruins. And I love that as an image for reconstruction. It's building with, with old, the old resources that have always been there, but reconstructing something better. And so it's worth it to go all the way through. Last word? Yeah. I, you know, with all due respect to um, Brian McLaren, uh, who is, uh, you know, I, I don't, I, I'm not, Brian is, you know, kind of comes... There's, there's. Years ago, he wrote a book called "A New, A New Kind of Christianity," mm-hmm. and um, you know, over the years, I learned a lot from Brian McLaren. And over the years, I've learned ways that I'm not, you know, with Brian McLaren, and in all respect to his journey and who he is, I, I we're not called to a new Christianity. Uh, we're called to the ancient Christianity. Amen. Uh, but we need to do ancient Christianity today. Um, that does not mean that we change Christianity for a moment in history. It means that we embody it in a unique and creative way. And it's like this when I, when I'm in, um, what my, my nine year old son, when you're, when you're elementary school kid, they give you the textbooks, right? And in the States, at least they give you the textbook, but they do this really funny thing where they give you the textbooks in class and then they give you a sheet of paper to cover the textbook. Yes. Yeah. Right. And then you get to draw on the textbook, you know, <laughs> like do that. All of, and that's brilliant because they know the kids are going to draw on the thing. So just give them something drawn. Um, we need the ancient textbook of Christian faith, but we need to cover it, you know, with a new sheet of paper and we get to draw all over it. But the last thing we should be doing is rewriting the book. Yeah. We need ancient Christianity today. And our call is to contextualize ancient faith now. Um, and this is not a call to reconstruct a new Christianity. We need the faith of the apostles. That's the faith we need. Amen. That's a great last word. AJ, thanks so much for this conversation. Uh, thanks for writing this book. I love it. So helped by it. If uh, people listening are uh, kind of captivated and want more from this conversation, please read the book. It's so, so good. I love that you are a professor teaching our our college age generation um man man i'd love to be a fly on the wall in your classes you're you're wonderful so thanks so much for your time and for this conversation thank you for pastoring thank you for pastoring it's such a weird and funky moment in history yeah you're welcome (laughs) (laughs) we'll get through (laughs) thanks aj So many great takeaways from that conversation. If you're hungry for more, check out his book, After Doubt. And do me a favor, write a glowing review of the podcast. 
I love reading them and hearing how this podcast is serving you well. Leave an honest five-star review. That would be much appreciated, and that bumps it up in the complicated world of algorithms. Uh, Post the podcast or a particular episode on your social media, or send an episode to someone in your life that you think will be helped by it. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Deep Thoughts. I hope it helps you in fostering deep faith. Oh my goodness. Just like, just loving reading it. I I would, you know, one of those books where you're sitting and you just, you have to, you have to let your wife know what you just read. Oh, <laughs> and then doing that five I wish or six I had that times. Because my wife doesn't read anything that I write. I, I wish I knew what that was like. <laughs> yeah. so I'm glad that your wife is getting something out of hey, it. Hey, man, <laughs> you know, I, there's also similarities there. I, like, she's like, oh, you're preaching this weekend? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I may be visiting another church this weekend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. But I have I have a face for audio, so it's worth <laughs> No, 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 no. You got the glasses though, man. You got the you got the right glasses. <laughs> Give you credibility. I'll tell you, the beard and the glasses. I, when I got these, I feel like my career took off. That was the, that was the moment. Now that's man. a theologian right there. <laughs> <laughs>